You're listening to the Biz Women Rock podcast. Let's do it. going on. Welcome to the Biz Women Rock podcast. I am your host, Katie Kremitzos, and I am the lucky one who gets to bring you phenomenal resources for your business every single week. Sometimes those look like incredible interviews with women who are sharing it all about how they've built their companies. Uh, Sometimes those are very topic-driven conversations for really great nuggets that I think that you will want to take uh, for resources out there for your business that you can utilize immediately. And sometimes those are just my own rants or pieces of wisdom that I have learned along my journey as a businesswoman that I think that you might find mostly entertaining and hopefully very informational. So welcome. I am so glad that you're here. Today we're kicking off a very special series that I am calling The Great Eight. These are the top eight most downloaded podcast episodes in all of the history of the Biz Women Rock podcast. Uh, So what's going to be happening is for the course of these next eight weeks, every single week I'm going to be sharing the uh, one of the top eight shows with you that have been downloaded the most. And the reason I'm doing this is twofold. Number one is that I realize with 240 some odd shows over the past two plus years, um, I realize that perhaps you have not listened to them all. And maybe you just discovered the Biz Women Rock podcast not too long ago or even a year ago. There is a lot of great content here and I wanted to make sure you had access to it all. The other reason is that I'm going to be playing behind the scenes and gathering content and creating new episodes So here's how this is going to work. To kick off the series, we're going to go literally, you know, like the countdown. So today it's going to be the eighth top downloaded show. Uh, Then next week it will be the seventh, sixth. You got it. You know know how that game is played. So um, I believe it's May 30th is going to be when the number one most downloaded show is going to be. And um, let me just say this. Look, I'm a little biased. I think all of my my episodes are pretty dang awesome. All of these ladies that I have interviewed are amazing. Uh, however, man, these top eight, there's a reason that they're downloaded so much. There's a reason that so many of you have listened to them and so many people across the entire globe have listened to them. So um, I would highly recommend if you have not heard these interviews, please take the time to listen to them. Um, or if you did listen to them when they first went live, Take a listen again. Maybe you're ready to hear something that you didn't get to quite hear back then. Um, and there's one thing I do want to mention. Uh, some of these are f- f- from you know the very beginning of Biz Women Rock. Please understand that we have evolved quite a bit since then. <laughs> so you are going to see my personality uh, has blossomed quite a bit since the beginning. Uh, I've become a lot more comfortable behind the mic. Um, and it's kind of obvious in a few of these. But anyway, so... Here we go. We are starting off with Alexis Wolfer. She is number eight for our great eight, the top eight most downloaded shows of the Biz Women Rock podcast. So let's get going.
My interview today is with Alexis Wolfer, who's the founder of thebeautybean.com. It is an online magazine that was started back in 2010, and the focus of it is all women's lifestyle, fashion, health. She has earned huge accolades for it. She's been in the Forbes Top 10 Women's Lifestyle websites. Um, She really has been uh, featured on E! CNN, The Doctors, NBC, Fox, uh, I mean, all over the board. She's been on Oprah.com and she is such a passionate person that I can't wait for you to hear her story on how she has built her online magazine business. So turn up the volume. The interview starts now. Alexis, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you. I am so excited to have this conversation with you. You and I just actually had to like force ourselves to to start recording because we were yapping it up quite for quite some time before this conversation really started. You were already giving so many great insights to your business journey and all of the different things that you've been doing. So I want to really make that official and get things started. You have grown an incredible media business and have done it in such a unique way and really have brought to the table something so powerful and so special for women. And I really want you to be able to share that story with all of our listeners today. But I want to get an idea of where you came from first so we can build that platform correctly. So can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing before you started your business? Sure. I think that most people who know what I'm doing now would be shocked to hear my story because this is not at all where I expected to be five years ago. I have my master's in human rights and women's studies from Columbia University. I was working in fashion editorial at the time, just kind of as something that I was passionate about and interested in, but not anything that I thought I was going to do career-wise. Right out of college, I had worked in Tanzania in East Africa for a nonprofit. For sure thought I was going to join the Peace Corps, work for the UN, or something along those lines. And when I was in graduate school, I ended up writing my thesis on women's magazines and their influence on body image and eating disorders. And it was really at that moment that I realized that the ultimate human right is the right to love your own self and your own body in particular, and that until women are loving and respecting themselves, it's extraordinarily challenging to ask and expect others to do the same. And so as working in editorial, I was like, there has got to be a better way to do this. You know, so many women's lifestyle magazines, websites, etc., are predicated in this idea of making women feel crappy about themselves in order to sell them things. I was like, I think that women are smarter than that, and I think that we have a corporate social responsibility to serve them in a more healthful and empowering way. And so my thesis, which was really touched on so many personal experiences for me, I had suffered from an eating disorder in college, was the basis of what became thebeautybean.com. And I didn't have any online experience, but I knew I wanted to do this online. This was in 2009, like the beginning of 2009, when you know, all of Condé Nast was kind of shutting the doors on so many of their publications. And I knew it was going to be really hard to elicit change from within in a short period of time. And when I got a job as a beauty editor at Stylecaster, which was just launching at the time, I was one of their first beauty editors and got a lot of really great online web experience. And at the same time was developing the Beauty Bean, which launched in January of 2010 as an online destination for women to be able to get their beauty, lifestyle, wellness, fitness, nutrition fix in a way that very, very subtly was designed to empower 
women and to make them feel better about themselves and ultimately to prevent eating disorders was really the goal, but to do it in a really glamorous way. From there, I started becoming more and more interested in the media space as a whole. I was kind of thrown into the TV world because having my master's in human rights and women's studies and also being intimately involved in things like Fashion Week in New York where there's always this controversy of are the models too thin, are the models too young, what message is this sending to the women of New York who are seeing this? I was called on by the media to really comment on all those things and was sort of thrown into that space. From there, I really started doing a lot more beauty and lifestyle TV segments and interviews and really expanding my media platform on television, which I really loved and really never thought that was something that I was going to seek out or want to do more of. It kind of just fell in my lap. And then from there, I became more and more interested in this food-beauty combination, which is really where my focus is right now these days. I went to the Institute of Integrative Nutrition because I was so interested in it from a personal standpoint. I had seen so much the effects of a poor diet on my own beauty and on my hair and my skin and my nails and all of those things. And I think so many of us are on diets to lose weight, thinking that it's going to make us more attractive, and it really ends up backfiring. And so I became really passionate about how we eat for beauty and wanted to learn all I could about that. And then simultaneously as a beauty editor was seeing all these beauty products come across my desk that were talking about now including the latest fad of a food ingredient in them. So shampoos with coconut oil or, you know, facial lotions with avocado in them. And I was like, why aren't we just going to the source? And so I started doing a lot of research into DIY beauty remedies and really focused a lot on that. And that's what my book that actually just came out this week is all about. It's called The Recipe for Radiance, Discover Beauty's Best Kept Secrets in Your Kitchen. And it's a beauty cookbook that covers you know, half recipes that promote beauty from within and half recipes for topical homemade remedies all using food. And that's sort of where I'm at today in that very long convoluted story that I apologize that I ranted all the way through. No, no. And it's not convoluted. It's very thorough. But I want to dig in deeper to a couple different phases in there. So the first phase that, that I really see in there is the launch of the beautybean.com. And so I want to talk a little bit about what that really took to actually launch the site because you were talking about that you knew that you wanted to do this online magazine. You knew that the purpose you wanted behind it. But can you give us the nitty gritty on what that really took to launch that? How did you get the content? How did you build the site? Like walk us through that process. Sure. So I feel really fortunate that I ended up at Stylecaster right when they were launching because they were so young and new and I was learning so much. And I think so many media sites these days, especially my experiences with them, is that when you're working there, you're really in such a specific area of expertise that you don't necessarily learn all sides of the business. When I was there, you were titling your own articles. You were learning about SEO. Like I was really learning so much that I don't think that I would have gotten that experience had I been at a more well-established media company to start. As for content, you know, I was writing so much for Stylecaster. I was like, if they're able to get all these writers, I can get all these writers. Like, I can do this. And I was lucky that a lot of the writers that were writing with me at Stylecaster were really interested in what I was doing. So when I first launched, a large group of women had already volunteered to write some content for me for free, which was super helpful. On a tech side, it was really challenging. I think being a female entrepreneur in the tech space when you don't have a tech background really just lends itself to disaster, so to speak. I think that when you don't know what you're paying for, it's hard. I think that it's hard when you're the creative 
to really explain your vision to somebody on the tech side of things. I think that was like my biggest challenge. And I made a lot of mistakes along the way. So in the beginning, as you were bringing all these pieces together, like what did it really take for you to launch and get the word out there? What were you doing so that people were actually coming to your site? So when the site first launched in January of 2010, I'd say starting the summer previously, so maybe like June or July of 2009, I had really started pushing our social media platforms. It was when Twitter was really first starting to get a lot of buzz, and I would just post beauty and lifestyle tips all throughout the day and really be driving awareness to the fact that the beauty bean was coming soon. We got lucky with some celebrities retweeting some things. That was really instrumental. But I also think just having been not only active in the beauty and lifestyle world for a few years, but also my previous contacts and connections and going to so many networking events, I think people were, I had kind of driven up interest, if you will, all on my own of people being curious as to not only what I was doing, but also what the beauty bean was and what it was going to be. You talked about the fact that what makes you so unique is the fact that you're really doing a lot of subtle empowering of, of women and of all the readers, and you're not falling into those categories of your typical women lifestyle magazines. Mm-hmm. But how did you really differentiate yourself? Like, what steps did you take? What did that actually look like? And how did you make sure that you were seen that way in the marketplace? So I didn't really want to be seen that way in the marketplace, if that makes sense. I wanted to be competing with all the women's lifestyle magazines that you're picking up at the grocery store. I didn't want it to be a come here because you want to feel better about yourself because that's not where I would have gone and that's not what I would have been looking for, but it's exactly what I needed. So it was really intentional that it was extraordinarily subtle, but we have a few really strong rules. So we don't cover anything weight loss related. So our fitness content is about being fit and healthy and strong. It's never about losing weight. Our nutrition content is just kind of healthy recipes, never about how many calories it has or fat grams. Any in-house photography, we use regular girls, and we don't retouch the images at all. No airbrushing, no Photoshop, nothing like that. Um, Any sock photography that we use, which is a necessity for young, small businesses that don't have extraordinarily large budgets for photo shoots every week. We really select with a very keen eye towards diversity of body shape, size, and color. And then I think Makeup Free Mondays was really kind of the personification of this whole movement, if you will, which was a movement that was started in April of 2010 as a way to encourage women to not wear makeup on Mondays or to wear less makeup on Mondays. And we launched it with a picture that I had taken on my cell phone in my bathroom in my New York City apartment at the time. And it's like, hey, like, let's get back to the point where we can look in the mirror without any makeup on and appreciate our beauty for what it is. And we can still love our makeup but have it be about something that's fun and glamorous but not something that defines us. And posted and AOL ended up picking it up. And we were on the homepage of AOL for two full days got over a million hits. Wow. Tons of comments. It was one of their most popular articles for the year. Come on. Um, That's incredible. And I love that, by the way. While you and I are speaking, I am celebrating No Makeup Fridays, too. (laughs) Cool. I love it. And it doesn't really matter about it being Mondays. It's just a matter of it being a day or a moment, even, where 
you know, I think for so many young women, we had that moment as little kids where we looked in the mirror, we tried on some older woman's lipstick or mascara or whatever, and you look in the mirror, you're like, wow, this is so glamorous, but that doesn't look like me. And yet so many women seem to have gotten to a point in their lives, myself included at the time, when I would wake up in the morning and look in the mirror, and for me it was eyeliner, but I think everybody's got their thing. And you look in the mirror, and you're like, wow, like, that doesn't look like me first thing in the morning because I'm not wearing whatever piece of cosmetics. And I was like, that's not how it's supposed to be. Like, you should appreciate your beauty in all states. And it's not an anti-makeup movement. I love makeup. I love everything about it. I think it's fun. But it should be fun and glamorous. It shouldn't be something that defines you. You talked about that second phase of the story was really that you started getting picked up and being seen as this representative of women in fashion and somebody who could represent sort of this naturalistic and and more down to the core of who the real woman is. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because you got very early on in this process, you kind of had this onslaught of media attention there. So can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like and what sort of effects that really had on your business? So one of the first fashion weeks after we had launched, I believe, I don't think it was the February, maybe it was September of 2010. It might have been the February of 2010 fashion week. I can't recall, but there was some drama about a model being cut from Zach Posen's runway show because she had put on weight and no longer fit into the dress. And there's some controversy as to whether or not she really didn't fit, blah, 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 blah. But there aren't a whole lot of people who are backstage at Fashion Week and so intimately involved in this world, but also can really speak to the effects and the implications of all of this on women and body image and eating disorders, et cetera. So it's kind of thrown into the media really early on talking about these issues that were at the intersection of women's rights and beauty and fashion, which is really like, that's my sweet spot. That's what I love. So kind of got a little bit lucky with all of that, I guess. And just kind of spun from there. And then when I was really enjoying the TV stuff, I ended up maybe like six months later hiring a PR team in New York that was helping us garner more press because we had been getting so much between the Fashion Week stuff and the body image stuff and people really getting what we were doing and being really passionate about it. I think also the way that we positioned ourselves was that we weren't In some ways, we were competing with everyone, and in another way, we weren't competing with anyone. The way that I always positioned the beauty bean was that we weren't competing with magazines, we weren't competing with bloggers, we weren't competing with TV personalities, that we were kind of our own entity. It put us in a place that really lent itself to garnering press coverage from all of those people. Because bloggers won't really cover other bloggers and magazines won't cover other magazines, but they'll all kind of cover each other if you can position yourself as not being competitive with any of them. What kind of lessons did you learn from being thrown into the media that early on in your business? And what did you learn about having to speak to a topic or, you know, just little maybe behind the scenes things that happen within media? You know, I think for me, and I don't think that this is true for everyone, but I think being thrown into it was the greatest blessing. I think that I would have been nervous. And literally my first time on television talking as an expert was I had gotten a call from somebody who was like, hey, where are you? What are you wearing? And I was like, I don't know, like jeans, a sweater. And they're like, can you be at Lincoln Center in 20 minutes for an interview with NBC? (laughs) And I was like, okay. And, like, I literally, like, jumped in the taxi from my apartment downtown in New York to get up to Lincoln Center. I'm sorry, it was Bryant Park at the time. They were still in the tents. To get up to Bryant Park and do this interview, and I didn't have any time to think about it or be nervous about it. It was really just, like, me sitting there chatting and having a conversation. And 
it went really well and it was great. And I think for me, that took all the nerves out of it. Whereas had it been something that I was preparing for or worried about, I think that that would have made it a much harder transition. I also think that for a lot of people looking to get into media, one of the most helpful things that I did was I just had a girlfriend over at my apartment one day and we pulled out a flip cam and she would ask me questions like the same, you're going to end up being asked the exact same questions in most interviews that you do. And so getting clear as to like what those like top 10 questions that most people are likely to ask you are going to be and sit in front of a flip cam and have the person ask them to you in a random order and walk and videotape it and watch it and do it again and do it again and do it again because you'll notice your speech patterns or I talk with my hands a lot or you know anything that you might do that might be distracting that you might want to work on that you don't need expensive media training you can do it yourself with you can even do it with your phone video camera these days that's great. I love that. That's a great piece of advice. So obviously being involved in the media and sort of being somebody who the media would call upon to represent this industry that really had an effect on your business. So I, I'm making the assumption that, you know, you were starting to see traffic from this. What else happened because of that? What kind of an impact did that have on your business? Everything. You know, I think it was all of a sudden people being interested in what I was, what I had to say in all categories. So it was no longer just being called upon to talk about body image and eating disorders. It was also being called on to talk about what are the latest makeup trends. And just kind of like, it's kind of like once you're seen as an expert in something, you can be an expert in anything, which I actually think is a huge problem with the media space. Like even just watching CNN with this missing plane, like the number of people who have been called upon as experts in aviation. And I'm like, wait, weren't they a relationship expert last week? Like I'm so confused. <laughs> but, but it's amazing. Like once you're kind of in that world, like you can kind of put on whatever hat you want. So I think that's kind of interesting to keep in mind. But yeah, I think all media and the press and all of that was really great. But ultimately, I think what was most impactful was that women were getting what we were doing. You know, we ran a Twitter contest right at the beginning of our launch where it was something like, like, tell us why you love the beauty being in order to enter to win like $100 worth of beauty products or whatever. And I for sure thought that all of the entries were going to be like, I love the beauty tips or I love the celebrity interviews or whatever it might be. And I feel like 85% of the entries were like, I love that the beauty bean doesn't airbrush their models, or I love that the beauty bean is about like quick, easy, realistic tips, or I love that the beauty bean like is really representative of real women. And I was like, wow, like these people are getting it. And this was at a time when like we were far more subtle in our message than we are now. So when we relaunched in this past January, we launched a pretty bold column, which was really like a feminist take on beauty and body image. We also added a new tagline, which was bold, brilliant, beyond the bullshit. So we became like a lot more obvious in our messaging. But at the beginning, the idea was really to be so subtle. So I think that what was really most powerful was that the reason why we were becoming more successful and getting more traffic was because people were getting what we were doing. And they were like, finally, like somebody said, we weren't talking down to them. We weren't saying like, you need to feel better about yourself or come here for 10 confidence boosting tips. This wasn't a, we weren't the self-help website. We were still the beauty website, but we were just doing it in a way that made women feel good. And we were showing women that you don't need to be running a marathon to be fit. And you don't need eyeliner in order to be beautiful. But if you want eyeliner, here are 10 that are going to stay on even if you're crying or going swimming. <laughs> So as you're building this company out these past five years, like there's a lot of moving parts that you have going on. So how many people are part of your team and how do you manage all the jobs that need to get done in order for your business model to work? 
So right now, I'm really the only person that does it full-time. I have three graphic designers slash web designers and developers that I call on for when there are technical issues, when I need something redesigned, etc. that are all kind of at different price points, different levels of expertise that depending on the project at hand I reach out to. I've got about 35 to 45 writers or contributors that write for the Beauty Bean, but some of them only write you know, a few times a year. Some of them write every week. And I have somebody who handles all social media for the beauty bean. But when you say, like, how do I make all moving parts work, I think my greatest strength, not only for the beauty bean, but in life and school, et cetera, was always, I was always really good at figuring out what I needed to do and what didn't need to be done. And I'm really good about not wasting time on the stuff that's really not essential. And so prioritizing the stuff that really, really has to get done, and then when you have time, do the other things. And then also figuring out what I was good at and figuring out what I could outsource because you can't do everything. And arguably and most often the things that you don't like to do are the things that you're not so good at. So I hated doing our social media. I love doing my personal social media. Like love running my own Twitter, my own Instagram, Facebook, etc. But like when it came to being kind of like the voice of the beauty bean and having to update, you know, we update our Twitter page like every 45 minutes. There was nothing about that that I enjoyed. It was such a time suck. I was like, here's something that's like relatively easy for me to outsource. And so that was the first thing that I did outsource. But I think really getting clear as to what you like to do and what you're good at and figuring out how to outsource as many of the other things as possible is one of the greatest things that you can do, especially as a solo entrepreneur. What sort of tips do you have or habits do you have that help you prioritize your day or, or what you need to be doing and what you don't need to be doing? When we update the site for the Beauty Bean, like we try every day for the site to refreshes at 3 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Sometimes there's a glitch in the back end. The vast majority of people aren't going to like stop coming to our website if we don't update until 6. You're not the center of the universe for everyone. And I know that's kind of hard for entrepreneurs to realize. And I know it might sound silly as I'm saying it, but I think when you're so invested in your business and you're so passionate about it and it's all you're doing living and breathing, it can be really easy to think that everybody else thinks it's as, it's as important as you do. And just kind of maintaining that perspective I think is a really important place to start. I remember when I was first launching and I got a call from somebody and she was like, I'm so sorry. Like, we're not going to be able to meet this deadline. Like, what can I do? Like, she was like so freaking out about it. And I was like, we are talking about beauty products. We are not saving lives. Like, it is okay (laughs) if this article doesn't go up today. Like, don't worry about it. Like, do what you need to do. Like, we'll be cool. Like, we're good. And I think that that's something that also all the people that I work with have really responded to. And I think that's why I get such great content from so many people and why most people are writing for me for free. I think that they like that I want them to write about what they're passionate about. I want them to write about what they're excited about. Like, I don't want you to email me asking me what you should be writing. Like, sure, I can send you some ideas if I have some ideas, but I want you to write about something that like, you're really pumped about and that you want to share because that's going to be your best content. So your role in the company, again, kind of jumping back a bit, is really the orchestrator of all this stuff. And that goes for the content on your website, too. So you have anywhere upwards of 40 different content providers who are, you know, at any variety of different time slots are really providing content for your site. So and I love what you're saying about getting the people who are passionate about the topics and then letting them sort of self-produce all of this stuff. So yeah, um, I'm a big believer in letting people like bring on an amazing team and be extraordinarily particular as to who you work with, but don't micromanage them once you bring them on. 
Mm. I think it's like bring on excellence and then let them be excellent because that's the reason why you brought them on. I also don't believe in deadlines, which I think a lot of people are probably going to think is crazy coming from a content providing website, but we always have enough content to produce new articles every day. So we're never at a loss of things to post. And I have found from personal experience that sometimes you wake up and like you're just not feeling that you want to write an article about the benefits or problems with coffee or coconut oil or whatever it is. You know, and like other days you wake up and like you're pumped to write about that. And like, I want your article when you're pumped to sit down and write about it because that's going to be your best content. And if that's today, if it's tomorrow, if it's next week, I would rather you send it to me when you're excited about it than just because you have some sort of an arbitrary deadline that I've set. And I found when I was first launching the Beauty Bean that I was spending an extraordinary amount of time just following up and trying to figure out like, whose deadlines was when, I had Excel spreadsheets up the wazoo, and I was like, admit, like, I hated it. I hated feeling like I was asking people for stuff. I hated feeling like I was hounding people for content. And I was, like, had a moment of, it doesn't need to be like this. Like, just because everybody else is doing it this way doesn't mean that I need to do it this way. And so I don't. And so we don't have any deadlines. What does the realities of, like, of that actually look like? Is that you just say, hey, these are when we want to go live with these particular articles. Make sure you have them up and you just kind of let them ride? It's even less structured than that. Every once in a while, if there's something that's extraordinarily time sensitive, I have a handful of girls that I'll email and be like, hey, is there any chance you can do this this week or today or whatever? But like the vast majority of beauty content, like it really doesn't matter if it's out today or if it's out next week. I think it's a matter of just keeping perspective and the people that are writing for me do what works for them. So yeah, sometimes it's like, hey, do you think you can get it in in the next week or so? Other times it's, you know, I have a couple of writers that have committed to writing once a month. I have some that have committed to writing twice a month. So I do stay, you know, slightly on top of making sure that they're meeting those requirements. But even there, like I'm extraordinarily lax. But it sounds like you're really getting, again, getting people who take ownership over what their role is with the beauty bean and how they're contributing and sort of let them contribute as they see fit for that particular arena. I think that's pretty great. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's also a matter of, you know, obviously I'm in a position of privilege right now where I have plenty of contributors. And so I'm never at a loss of content. I'm also, I love to write. So on those rare occasions where I'm like, oh crap, like we don't have an article to go up today or like, you know, the articles that have been submitted haven't been edited yet. Like I can write something. Got it. So it's really not, I get that like it's come, this is coming from a position of privilege with regard to, you know, the amount of content that we have coming into us and the amount that we're posting every day. But for me, holding people to a deadline always made me feel a little bit icky and to be honest, I felt like it was producing worse results. I like that. And I so like that. It just didn't I like really that work for model. me. Yeah, I like. And that I think it's really model. just a lesson in like just because other people are doing something some way doesn't mean that you need to do it that way. It doesn't mean that it's right. Alexis, what have been some of your biggest failures that you've had over these past years? So I think that when I was first starting and not knowing anything about the tech world, I was having a really tough time with the tech side of things, and. I more mean that I was having a really tough time both finding the right people to work with and then letting go and letting them do their thing because I felt like it was like such a beast that I didn't know anything about yet. It was so instrumental to my business model that I needed it to be perfect and I was micromanaging and I wasn't really trusting the people that I was working with. And, you know, it took the first round, the first web designer that I worked with for the Beauty Bean, I ended up like 
writing a giant check and I ended up like not using anything that they had provided because it just like, it wasn't a good fit. They didn't really get my vision. Like it just wasn't working. And I remember having that moment of being like, I can either like continue to throw money towards this and try to fix it, or I can cut my losses. It's a sunk cost and I can go and find the right team. And that's what I did. And that was a really tough lesson to learn, but I feel really grateful that I learned it. But that was certainly the biggest failure, so to speak, I've had since starting the site. Have you ever had a moment in all of these years of building your business that was just a really low point for you? Aside from that particular failure, but I'm talking like maybe like an emotional or professional low moment that you just either wanted to give up or you were just sort of at your wits end. Have you had one of those moments? And if you have, how have you gotten out of that? I definitely had moments in the development of the site before we had launched where I was like, what the hell am I doing? And I would call my dad at like two in the morning, hysterically crying and be like, what am I doing? I'm blowing through my savings. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, should I not be doing this? Like, should I just go into editorial or join the Peace Corps? Like, whatever it was that I thought I wanted to do at that hot moment. And my dad would be like, Alexis, what's the worst that happens? And he would hang up on me. Whoa. And I'd be like, okay, I can do this. Mm. And he was right. Because like, I think that we're all so scared of failing. And sometimes failing is the best thing that can ever happen to us. And my dad, you know, after all of these phone calls where he would just hang up on me, like he had also made a larger point of worst case scenario, you have an extraordinary experience that makes you infinitely more qualified for whatever job you want to do next. Oh, I like that. And if you look at it sort of like, he was like, think of this as grad school. Like, think of it as like another year of grad school. Like, give yourself two years and see what happens. And think of it as if you're still in school. And that's really what I did. And I think having that perspective, it also made me think of the expenses the first two years as sort of being like tuition, which didn't feel as scary, if that makes any sense. So it felt like I was paying for lessons and I was paying to learn as opposed to you know, throwing money into this business that may or may not succeed. And I think that really helped free me from some of the fears of failure when I was able to think about it more as an educational experience that I hoped would work out. But if it didn't, I was still getting more out of it than I was putting into it. That's a great paradigm shift. I love that attitude. Kudos to your dad for, thank you, Alexis, dad, yeah, for, for saying that. <laughs> That's really, really wonderful. So I want to talk about your book, which is really that last phase that you had talked about, kind of where you are right now. So you, your book just came out. and mm-hmm. you know, came out on Tuesday. Excellent. Big congratulations. And if you guys want to know more about Alexis's book, you can go to the show notes at bizwomenrock.com and there'll be a, a direct link to that. But can you talk about, from a business perspective, why you wanted to launch a book, why you wanted to create a book, and what affects so far in just these couple of days it has had, or at least maybe even the the preemptive excitement about the book has had on your business? Sure. So I kind of always had the idea for the recipe for radiance, which again is like a beauty cookbook, if you will. So it's half recipes that promote beauty from within and half recipes for topical homemade beauty remedies, all using food. But I really didn't think that this was something that I would do for another five years or so. And I ended up getting a call from a older woman who I'm friendly with in New York who has written a lot of best-selling books and she had written an article about me for Oprah.com when Makeup Free Mondays had first started and we just kind of stayed in touch and became friends and her literary agent I guess had seen that we were connected and wanted to know what I was up to had called to take me out to lunch and we went to lunch and she was like well do you have any ideas for a book and I threw out a couple of ideas as being one of them 
And she was like, I love that. Like, send me a book proposal. And I was like, I don't even know what a book proposal looks like. Like, what? And, you know, went home and, like, did a little bit of research. And she sent me some ideas. And I ended up emailing a bunch of other friends that had written books or colleagues, I should say, that had written books asking for some advice from them or who they had worked with. And I ended up signing with a different literary agent. But that first agent was certainly the one who gave me the confidence to kind of seek this out as an idea to do right now. And that was about a year and a half ago. And the book sold really quickly thereafter. And then I wrote it and yeah, it just came out. Benefits that I've seen, you know, my manager at who I still work with, I was going to say at the time, but my manager, when we first signed the book deal, said, this is nothing more than a really expensive business card. It's still worth your doing. And I think that that's really where I've seen the most value. I think that there's an element of clout that you get being a published author that you don't get just running a website. And I think that's kind of sad because the amount of work that goes into my website on a yearly basis far exceeds the amount of work that went into this book. But I do think that there's some sort of prestige, if you will. I think media partners in particular like to call on published authors as experts. I mean, we've gotten a tremendous amount of press, but I think that that's also because I spend every day of every year networking and building relationships and doing favors for others. So those few times that I need help with something, I have a whole lot of people that I can call and ask for support. I also always conduct myself with kindness and professionalism, and I think people really respond to that, and I'm always willing to help others. So when it came time for the book to come out, we're in People Style Watch magazine right now. We were just in Star magazine last week. We're on Teen Vogue's website. We're on Yahoo Shine later this week. We're in Women's Health next month. We're, I was on NBC two days ago in New York. I was on CBS in LA this morning. We're on Access Hollywood's website, and we've gotten a tremendous amount of national press for a beauty cookbook, which maybe normally wouldn't get all of that press, but it's because of the relationships that I've garnered over the years that really allow that to all take place. Since we're talking about books, have there been any books that you have read over these past years of being a business owner that have really made an impact on how you run your company? Danielle Laporte's The Firestarter Sessions is one of the best books I've ever read. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it or with her. I was not. I was invited to her book launch party in New York a few years ago. I didn't even know who she was. I must have gotten 10 emails from friends of mine being like, hey, are you going to Danielle's book party? I'm like, who is this? Like, I've never even heard of this girl, but like, sure, I guess I'm going to her book party. And so I went to her book party and left with her book. And I went home that week. I went out to my parents' house that weekend for just kind of a relaxing weekend, I read the entire book. And I loved it. I think it is an incredible resource for female entrepreneurs. I think it helps put business in a feminine light, if you will. And I think that she really speaks to the female entrepreneurial experience and to everything that I believe about female business owners and entrepreneurs in that I think it's like we don't need to act like men in order to be successful businesswomen. I think that we can be creative and we can have multiple interests and we can be passionate about lots of things. And she really gets that. So like for sure, like I have given her book as gifts to so many people. I can't even begin to tell you. I think it's epic. I really love Tim Ferriss's the four hour work week. I was extraordinarily resistant to reading it at first because I had this, I was like, if he can do that in four hours, like imagine what he could do in 40 or 80, like 
he's like undervaluing his talent. He's not doing enough, blah, blah, blah. And then I read the book and I realized that it really wasn't about that at all. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that the title is just something to entice people to buy it. But like for me, I was like this entrepreneur who was working 100 hour weeks and I was like, oh, screw him. Like he doesn't get it. <laughs> and then I read the book and I was like, wow, there are a lot of really tangible, interesting tips in this book, particularly the focus on being able to outsource things and figuring out he's really focused on, he says something in the book that's like, if it doesn't, it's not something that you want to do. It's not something that's good for your business financially and you don't have to do it, meaning that there's not some sort of like a family responsibility or like that it's like the right thing to do with regard to your relationships, then don't do it. And I really try to do everything in my life according to those three principles. So if it's not something that I think is going to be fun or if it's not something that's going to further my business and if it's not something that I feel like I'm obligated to do because of a family relationship or whatever, I'm much more likely to say no. Are there and any... It's amazing how much time you can free up if you live your life by those three principles. Ain't that the truth? Yeah, and I think that there I love what I loved that he did in that book was he just did like this whole experiment. I mean, that's really what Tim Ferriss does is he's this like human experimenter, right? Yeah. And uh-huh. and he just did this whole experiment with let's play with outsourcing and let's see exactly what I can outsource and you know, for those yep. of you who haven't read the book, I mean, he's outsourcing, you know, his laundry and I mean, just yeah. anything and everything <laughs> that he's like, sure, why not? Let's try it. Let's give it a whirl. So But yeah. it's amazing how much stuff, first of all, you can really outsource anything and everything. And yeah, sometimes it costs more. Sometimes it's not worth it. But like, if there's something that you really hate to do, like, don't do it. You will be a much happier and more successful entrepreneur if you figure out how to outsource those things and put your focus on making up that lost income in ways that you make you happy. So I'd say those two books and then The Alchemist. I love that book. I haven't had anyone recommend that book on here yet. That's great. It's my favorite book. I think it's such an incredible story, and I think it's an incredible story for entrepreneurs. I want to know what you really do as an entrepreneur, as a business owner. What do you do to stay sharp about who, about being a great business owner? Are there groups that you're part of? Are there things that you're participating in? What do you do to stay sharp? I am part of a women's mastermind group. I was in one in New York when I was living there, and now I have a new one here in L.A., and we meet every Wednesday night for about two hours, and we are all female entrepreneurs, all sort of in, like, the women's lifestyle space, but not exclusively, and we just, like, chat business, and we talk about wherever we're at. We talk about if we – it can be anything from, like, here are the layouts of my website. Which do you think is better? Do you like these colors better? It could be talking about relationship issues or life issues that come up as an entrepreneur in a different way than for non-entrepreneurs in some ways. That's been extraordinarily, extraordinarily helpful. We also have a gratitude email list. My LA mastermind group now does where every day you just hit reply all to an email and you write a list of things that you're grateful for. And I find that to be extraordinarily powerful. And not only because it forces you to put the focus on your gratitude and not on the things that you want or don't have, but I think it's also really powerful to see what other people are grateful for because it makes you have an appreciation for those things also. And sometimes they're silly things, like I'm really grateful for my Vitamix or I'm really grateful for like morning coffee. And other times they're obviously much more profound. I am part of the Young Entrepreneurs Council. I find that to be a really valuable resource for me, mostly because it gives me access to all the press outlets that are in the tech financial business space. I have a really strong network in the women's lifestyle world. So whether it's beauty bloggers, fashion bloggers, YouTubers, women's lifestyle magazines, etc., like I can call on those people pretty easily to cover whatever I'm working on, if I'm working on something big, or if I 
need support for something or want to be needs more press coverage for whatever it is that I'm working on. But like the YEC really gives me access to like Forbes and Inc. and all of those publications that wouldn't necessarily be in my wheelhouse otherwise. But I really think like calling on like fellow female entrepreneurs is really the best thing that you can do. I was actually just yesterday speaking at NYU's Stern School of Business to females in the entrepreneur program. And there was a half an hour at the end that was for networking. And during my talk, I had said, you know, like, I hope that during this half hour of networking, you talk to each other and not to me, because you guys are your own best resources. Mm. And I really think that women entrepreneurs need to stick together. I think we need to have a focus on collaboration, not on competition. And I firmly believe that all ships that rise, rise together, and that together we can do a much better job than we can individually do. And so finding people who are like-minded, who are in similar fields or targeting similar audiences, who get what you're doing and having them to bounce ideas off of or work with, I think is extraordinarily powerful. And you've touched on exactly what the Business Women Rock community is all about and why this podcast and this community exists, because that is my absolute vision is just to make sure that there is a space for women to really collaborate with each other, to really celebrate one another and to cheer each other on in our journeys. I absolutely love that. So I couldn't agree with you more on that. And even to just have people to say like, hey, I was approached to do this job. Like, how much do you think I should charge? Or have you done something similar? Because otherwise, like as a female entrepreneur, and not even just female, as a young entrepreneur who's just starting out in business, I don't mean young age-wise, I mean like young in your business. I think it can be really hard to know like what you should charge for something or how much somebody willing to pay. And you often end up negotiating against yourself or you price yourself out of a job, or you underprice yourself. And you know, having people that you can have a transparent conversation, and obviously you need to have a lot of trust, but like with all these women, we're open about everything financially. We're open about what we're charging for things, what we're making on things, et cetera, and getting really good, honest feedback so that you know that like if another person in your, in your mastermind was approached by maybe not the same brand, but a similar brand about a project, and they got X amount of dollars that you know that you can ask for X amount of dollars too. That's great. Very, very true. Alexis, I really want to conclude this conversation by asking you about your vision. What is in the future for you and the Beauty Bean? I'm really focused on continuing to do everything that I can to empower women to feel their most beautiful and to feel like the power for that beauty is in their own hands. And I'm not 100% sure of exactly where that next step is going to take me. I certainly have every intention of writing another book. I've been in talks with my publisher about some other great ideas. I am looking to do more stuff on television as well and just continue to grow the beauty bean and continue to impact as many women as possible to really feel their best always. Alexis, I just really can't thank you enough for being here with us on the show today, sharing your story with everyone and just very empowering. Thank you so much for being so real with us about what you've been going through as a business owner these years and what your message is. Your passion is so obvious and just bleeds, you know, from you. And I just really thank you. I appreciate that because I think all of us as business women, no matter what we're doing, the ideal is that we're really we're here on this earth and we really truly are emanating our passion. We're living through our passions. And sometimes that's a really hard journey and sometimes it's amazing and ultimately it's incredibly worthwhile so I just really want to thank you so much for really wrapping up that entire experience in your journey today it's been really wonderful so thank you so much and big congratulations to you for all of the continued success that you're having 
Thank you so much. And if anybody wants to get in touch with me, you can certainly get in touch with me through thebeautybean.com. And I hope you pick up a copy of the recipe for Radiance. It's a really fun, really fun beauty cookbook, if you will. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.